0: Thank you for tuning in to the Bread of the Word podcast. Bread of the Word is an online ministry striving to feed people the life-sustaining Bread of God's Word. Bread of the Word exists for the reclamation of the Bible in the heart, mind, and walk of all the saints of God. For it is the Bible itself which is the ultimate standard by which people are to live and honor God. Thank you for tuning in. This is Bread of the Word. Well, hello, we are back with another episode of the Bread of the Word podcast, Reclaiming the Bible and Exalting Christ, one verse at a time. My name is Tyler, and we are continuing our, our uh, trek through the book of Ecclesiastes. We've been going verse by verse through Ecclesiastes for quite some time now. And we are coming um, towards the middle point. We're about halfway through the book, and we are going to be covering a whopping two verses today because, as I said last week, we're to a point in Ecclesiastes where Solomon is laying out a series of things in staccato, just one after each other. And it seems best to give them each their due time and to go piece by piece through this list. So we'll be covering verses 10 and 11 and 12 of chapter 5 and it reads the one who loves silver is never satisfied with silver and whoever loves wealth is never satisfied with income this too is hevel or vanity as some translations say CSB says futile when good things increase the ones who consume them multiply what then is the profit to the owner except to gaze at them with his eyes the sleep of the worker is sweet, whether he eats little or much, but the abundance of the rich permits him no sleep. And as we dive into those, those three verses, there are a couple key words that I want to point out right off the bat um, from Hebrew. The, the first is saveya, which means satisfied second being, of course, hevel. We've been talking about this word quite a bit, and it means vapor or smoke. It's usually translated as um, futile or meaningless or um, vanity, but it's, it's a poetic device. It's a In a sense, it's a metaphor. And then lastly is the word hamon, which is noise, abundance, or wealth, depending on the context. And so the point of focus here as we get, as we work through the words of Solomon, is the folly of wealth. Solomon directs our attention to wealth and its hevelity, if you will, and how much um, of it is vanity. And he gets right into it and presents the problem to us. The one who loves silver is never satisfied, is never savea with silver. And whoever loves wealth, is never savea with income. This, too, is futile. And the uh, the term love here is human to object. And the love of silver, this is something that is important, because who wrote this? Um, chapter 1 of Ecclesiastes attributes this to Solomon. The words of the teacher, son of David, king of Jerusalem. The only one to hold that... To be qualified of all those things is Solomon. But here's the thing. Solomon had a lot of money. Solomon was loaded. It says in 2nd Kings that at at his height, he was wealthier than all of the other kings in the region. And so this is something he knows well. Check out the the list of his provisions in in 1st Kings. It says, Judah and Israel were as numerous as the sand of the sea. They were eating, drinking, and rejoicing. And Solomon ruled all the kingdoms from the Euphrates River to the land of the Philistines, and as far as the border of Egypt. They offered tribute and served Solomon all the days of his life. And Solomon's provisions for one day, this is what he was given over one day, were 180 bushels of fine flour and 360 bushels of meal. 10 fattened cattle, 20 range cattle, and a 100 sheep and goats, besides deer, gazelles, and roebucks, and pen-fed poultry. For he had dominion over everything west of the Euphrates, from Tibshah to Gaza, and over all the kings west of the Euphrates. He had peace on all his surrounding borders. Throughout Solomon's reign, Judah and Israel lived in safety, from Dan to Beersheba, each person under his own vine and his own fig tree. Solomon had 40,000 stalls of horses for his chariots and 12,000 horsemen. Each of these deputies, for a month in turn, provided food for King Solomon and for everyone who came to King Solomon's table. They neglected nothing. Each man brought the barley and the straw for the chariot teams and the other horses to the required place according to his assignment. Now, the point being, in that exhaustive list, this guy is loaded when he writes these lines in ecclesiastes we don't nece- know necessarily where precisely in his life this was written but we do know that he calls the love of silver futile we can run with that and one key point of the hebrew word for satisfied is that it is often linked to an exposure of arrogance that there is a presented in hebrew literature there is a Direct correlation between being satisfied with things and arrogance, the exposure of arrogance. The use of this word is a poetic device. The fact that one is never satisfied with wealth is a testament to their own arrogance. James um, puts it this way in his letter. Come now, you rich people, weep and wail over the miseries that are coming to you. Your wealth has rotted, and your clothes are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver are corroded, and their corrosion will be a witness against you, and will eat your flesh like fire, for you have stored up treasure in the last days. Brothers and sisters, we are not materialists. The world we believe in is not merely matter and energy. The world we live in is far more complex and far more beautiful than that. There's grandeur to the world that goes beyond our own preconceived sense of self-reliance. When the acquiescence of wealth, when we make that the point of our focus, we place the world in a much smaller frame. We're essentially trying to make the world into something we can control with our own resources, with our own devices and methods. And this, says Solomon, is a folly. He elsewhere calls folly a pursuit of the wind, a shepherding of the wind. And on the subject of materialism, G.K. Chesterton comments, As an explanation of the world, materialism, that belief that the world, that reality is just matter and energy. That's what he means by materialism. As an explanation of the world, materialism has a sort of insane simplicity. It has just the quality of the madman's argument. We have at once the sense of it covering everything, and the sense of it leaving everything out. Contemplate some able and sincere materialist, as for instance Mr. McCabe, and you will have exactly this unique sensation. He understands everything, and everything does not seem worth understanding. His cosmos may be complete in every rivet and cogwheel, but still his cosmos is smaller than our world. Somehow his scheme, like the lucid scheme of the madman, seems unconscious of the alien energies and the large indifference of the Earth. Is not thinking of the real things of the Earth, of fighting peoples or proud mothers, or first love or fear upon the sea. The Earth is so very large, and the cosmos is so very small. The cosmos is about the smallest hole that a man can hide his head in. And so when we look at the world... There are realities we have to come to terms with. One is that the world does not bound to my will. That the world is bigger than I can really fathom. How, how big is the universe? We don't really know. That is not something that's easy to measure. And they've been saying, scientists have been saying for years now, that the universe is expanding. So it can't technically be measured. It just keeps Going out, and so this notion that the world is something I can control, something I can manipulate by my own methodology, is purely asinine. Um, I've been I've been reading in uh, the books of Samuel and Kings lately. There is some interesting content in there and in the beginning of 1st Samuel there is a song that Hannah sings and it's easy for us to pass over the poetry when we're reading narrative but the reality is the poetry is an interpretation of the narrative a lot of the theology comes from the poetry and in Hannah's prayer after she has been given a child after God has granted her a child after praying and seeking God she is given a child and she exalts God says, there is no one holy like the Lord there is no one beside you and there is no rock like our God do not boast so proudly or let arrogant words come out of your mouth for the Lord is a God of knowledge and actions are weighed by who by him the bows of the warriors are broken but the feeble are clothed with strength. Those who are full hire themselves out for food. But those who are starving hunger no more. There's a, almost like a backwards um, perception here. The Lord brings death and gives life. He sends some down to Sheol and he raises others up. The Lord brings poverty and gives wealth. He humbles and he exalts. He guards the steps of his faithful ones. But the wicked perish in darkness, for a person does not prevail by his own strength. It is not by men that men prevail. It is not by might that men prevail. That is, that is kind of the theme of first and second Samuel, is not by might shall any prevail. When we get to David and Goliath, which is in that same book, it is not by might that David prevailed, because it was all about God working through him, working for him. And so, as an end to itself, wealth creates a vicious, endless cycle where we are trying to prevail by might. But we will always grow hungry. There will always be someone to work if the field grows larger. Carnally-minded capitalism creates a gaping black hole in the human heart. Why? Because we're trying to assert ourselves as God, as the determination of things. But God did not make us to be truly self-reliant. Did he? And so this notion that wealth is the end-all be-all is folly. And it points us to something wrong in here, when that is our posture. The worker-boss relationship can be good. Don't misunderstand me here. And what it is, it is a good thing. But when the pursuit of wealth and land is founded on arrogance and self-reliance, to the point that it robs people of sleep, then our own folly proclaims judgment upon us. Jeremiah 17 says the heart is more deceitful than anything else and incurable. Who can understand it? but i the lord examine the mind i test the heart to give to each according to his way according to what his actions deserve he who makes a fortune unjustly is like a partridge that hatches eggs it didn't lay in the middle of his life his riches will abandon him so in the end he will be a fool and that's that's an interesting nature picture because partridges are known to steal nests and try to um, hatch eggs they didn't lay. But because they are not their own, when they do hatch, they they don't stay. They don't stick around. And that is the way wealth is. You know, we've all heard the cliche that it's like monopoly. That it all goes back in the box. The reality is when we build our lives around physical wealth, there's going to be a day where we lose it. Jesus himself said any that would save his life will lose it but if you will lose your life for my sake you will save it a fellow reichen comments on these verses in jeremiah like the curse the blessing is a matter of trust the contrast is absolute cursed is the one who trusts in man verse 5 but blessed is the man who trusts in the lord verse 7 kidner observes that the pivotal word in these verses is trust for everything will turn on where one's heart is. Everything turns on where one's heart is. So where is your heart? Where's your confidence? Do you rely on yourself most of the time or do you trust in the Lord all the time? God only blesses those who trust in him. If you want life, you must depend on God the way a tree depends on a river. Total trust in God brings life. The life God gives cannot be taken away. The blessed man or woman is Quote, like a tree planted by the water. Will such a tree become parched when there is a heat wave? No, because it is planted by streams of living water. Its leaves will stay green when the weather is hot. Will the tree wither during a year of drought? No, because it has a constant water supply. The tree by the river will be in full bloom when the bush in the desert dies. Interesting enough, Solomon uses a a field illustration, sort of like Jeremiah. He uses a field illustration. He ties things back to the field. And that, once again, takes us back to Genesis. So, If we go back to Genesis 2, um, one of the things that continues to amaze me about Ecclesiastes is how much we have to read Genesis in order to read Ecclesiastes. So we go back to Genesis 2. Verse 15. The Lord God took the man and placed him in the garden of Eden to work it and to watch over it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For on the day you eat from it, you will certainly die. So he puts him in the garden to work it, to reap the benefits of the garden, because it it will bear fruit. And he's there to to work the garden, to take care of it, to culture, cultivate it, to nourish it. He's, he's a gardener. And that word Adam, ha-adam, um, literally means the one from the dirt. And just as God formed Adam from the dirt, God has placed Adam in the garden To form and work the garden. But things don't don't shape up that way, do they? We go to chapter 3, verse 17. And he said to the man, Because you listened to your wife and ate from the tree, about which I commanded you, do not eat from it, the ground is cursed because of you. You will eat from it by means of painful labor all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you. And you will eat the plants of the field. You will eat bread by the sweat of your brow. Until you return to the ground. Since you were taken from it. For you are dust. And you will return to dust. Here the folly of pursuing wealth is revealed. The ground is cursed. We live in a cursed world. A fallen world. A damaged world everything is tainted by sin and everything we have and are is tainted by sin. Romans 7 says, For we know that the law, meaning what God has called good, is spiritual. But I am of the flesh, sold as a slave under sin. For I do not understand what I am doing, because I do not practice what I want to do, but I do what I hate. Now if I do not If I do what I do not want to do, I agree with the law that it is good. So now I'm no longer the one doing it, but it is sin living in me. For I know that nothing good lives in me, that is, in my flesh. For the desire to do what is good is with me, but there's no desire to do it. There's this tug of war in the Christian between between good and evil. In the same way that Adam and Eve stood in that garden and are posed with this this decision, what God has said and what I want to do. And much like Adam and Eve, we make that same decision every day. Moment by moment, hour by hour, we go our own way. And the ground continues to be cursed, that 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 sin has spread. It has continued for generation upon generation upon generation. And there is nothing good that dwells in me. This world is messed up because of sin. And that affects everything. When we talk about wealth, and the love of wealth, and the pursuit of material things, that is what flows from, is a depraved heart. A heart, the heart of one who has dwelt, who has dwelt, in a fallen, broken, cursed world, where even the ground is cursed. And on this, Drew Johnson um, notes in his commentary on Genesis, to the man, that which was created to be fruitful will turn against him. His labors are now made toilsome. This. Signals what was, that what was originally good has now been corrupted. That corruption also signals that creation can also be restored to good use. Back to Shalom, the Hebrew word for peace. If we believe the creation is corrupted, then it's because we sense that there might exist an uncorrupted version of reality. Thus, in the biblical story of redemption, spotting out corrosion of government The physical world and warped relationships means that we are anticipating a a restoration of all things. Verse 11. When good things increase, the ones who consume them multiply. There's been this this steady growth and this, this cycle has reciprocated. The sleep of the worker is sweet, whether he eats little or much. But the abundance of the rich permits them no sleep. There is a balance. There's a way that this plays out where it's a good thing. And there is a way this plays out that robs someone, that robs us of sleep, that robs us of the good. Why? Because this world is broken and needs to be restored. Romans 8 says, For I consider the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is going to be revealed in us, to us, for the creation eagerly waits with anticipation for God's sons to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in the hope that the creation itself will also be set free from the bondage to decay into the glorious freedom of God's children. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together with labor pains until now, not only that but we ourselves who have the spirit as the first fruits we also groan within ourselves eagerly awaiting waiting for adoption the redemption of our bodies now in this hope we were saved but hope that is not seen hope that is seen is not hope because who hopes for what he sees now if we hope for what we do not see we eagerly wait for it with patience In the same way, the Spirit also helps us in our weakness, because we do not know what to pray for as we should, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with inexpressible groanings. And he who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit, because he intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. We know that all things work together for the good of those who love God, who are called according to his purpose. For those who he foreknew, he also predestined. To be conformed to the image of the son so that he would be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters and those he predestined he also called and those he called he also justified and those he justified he also glorified and that is that is a lot but simply put the world is going to be made new it is being made new now part of the damage of the garden of what happened in the garden Is that the whole creation fell when Adam fell. The whole creation is tainted by sin. And is awaiting redemption and restoration. The making of all things new. And that is coming. That is the center of our hope as Christians. That God will make all things new. And the way he does this. Is through through people. Through individuals. Because we are we as Christians are not what we were. We've been redeemed. We've been ransomed. We've been set free from sin. We are being sanctified according to the image of Christ. That we are being conformed to the epitome of what God has called good. That that ideal, that defined concept of what is good, of what man should be, we are being conformed into. That that which was broken in the garden is being remade. And it, ha- it works through the gospel. This idea that we are saved by grace through faith. That we have been made to stand in the place of saints. In the place we should not be. As the adopted children of God. That is how the world gets better. That is how the world becomes anything but what it is right now, because God is actively redeeming this world. He is restoring this world one person at a time, one moment at a time. And there will come a day where every knee will bow, whether that is before Christ as Savior or as Judge. Regardless, sin will have no part in what God is doing, what God is building. And if we can appreciate what Paul is saying in this text and get it fixed in our minds, we will find it to change the way that we look at life, the way we look at God, the way we look at problems, the way we look at triumphs, the way that we suffer, the way that we prosper. Every facet of life under the sun will be radically transformed by the fact that God is through the work of through the personal work of Christ and the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit that God is sovereignly guiding us back to the garden back to the way things ought and should be Thank you for tuning into this episode of the Bread of the Word podcast. I pray that it has been beneficial to your walk with God and that he has called you into a deeper relationship and fellowship with himself. If you want to hear more from Bread of the Word, feel free to hit that subscribe button down at the bottom. Get notified about new content whenever we go live. Um, You can also watch us on Rumble Video and YouTube or you can listen on your favorite podcast platforms. Um, You can also find us on social media if you want to follow us on Facebook, Twitter, or Gab. Links will be provided in the bio um, if you would like to check those out. And there will also be a message in the comment section, um, a free gospel message for download, entitled The Two J's: The Joy of the Potter and the Journey of the Clay. That's something that I've written, that's something God laid on me to write and then send out. And so I'm not making anything off of it. I'm not selling it. It is free for you to read and share. We need a further saturation of the gospel in our world, in our culture. And it starts right here. Bread of the Word Ministries exists for the reclamation of the Bible and the exaltation of Christ through the reading and teaching of his holy transformative word. I hope you guys have a great rest of your day. God bless. Matthew 4.4